Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. A recent Gallup survey of the concerns of Americans showed foreign policy almost near the bottom of the list of those concerns, with inflation and prices near the top. Other high-ranking topics included the economy in general, immigration, crime and violence, race, the environment, and topping the list, the proper role of government. The fact is that none of these problems can be solved without a thriving, healthy democracy to get at their root cause and work together to find bipartisan solutions. That's why it's become clear that our collective angst about all of these issues is really about whether we have a strong enough democracy, both locally and nationally, to solve any of our problems. Maybe that's why one of the most distinguished foreign policy experts in the country has turned his attention inward, from understanding the world to trying to better understand the future and our place in it. My guest, Richard Haas, is president of the Council on Foreign Relations, where he's been for almost 20 years. He's an experienced diplomat and policymaker. He served in the Pentagon, the State Department, and White House under four presidents, Democrat and Republican. He's won numerous awards and is the author and editor of 15 books, including the recent best-selling The World, A Brief Introduction, and A World in Disarray. It is my pleasure to welcome Richard Haas back to this program to talk about his newest work, The Bill of Obligation. Richard Haas, great to have you back on the program. Jeff, it's great to be back with you. Thank you. Talk about why turning your attention to the problems we face here at home, the problems of democracy now. Certainly in, in your realm, in the realm of foreign policy, there, there are plenty of other problems out there, and certainly problems of, of democracies out there. What is it that you saw happening here now at this time that really focused your attention on this? Well, you're right. There's no shortage of international problems that can keep a foreign policy kind of guy uh, plenty busy, whether it's China, obviously what's going on with Russia and Ukraine, Iran's and uh, North Korea's nuclear programs, climate change, uh, terrorism. God knows there's a, enough stuff. But my view is that our ability contend, to contend with all of them in part to, or in no small part depends on our own ability to have the resources, to have the bandwidth, to have the unity. Uh, to come up with uh, policies to, to, that generate, again, the resources and the consistent foreign policy that's required. And increasingly, uh, I came to the conclusion that the biggest threat was here at home. It's a threat that gets in the way of, of introducing and agreeing on and implementing consistent, smart policy. And worse yet, as we saw on January 6th, uh, we face a potential not only uh, gridlock, uh, where worsening problems can't be addressed, but also political violence. I spent, in the course of my career, uh, several years as the U.S. envoy to Northern Ireland, which were scarred by decades of uh, what you might call low-level political violence scattered around uh, that area. And I worry that that's not an impossible uh, future here, that what happened on January 6th, rather than being a one-off, I think the potential for it to happen at this or that state house or city hall or attack on this individual judge or political figure, uh, that's no longer in the realm of the of the unimaginable. So what led me to write this book is I'm increasingly worried about about our challenges here at home. How are those challenges different, if at all, 
from the challenges that we faced in the in the 50s during the McCarthy era and the challenges that we faced in the 60s when we had political assassination, political violence, even political violence at the Capitol. And, and, and certainly we managed to find ways to work our way through those problems. No, it's, it's a good question. And it's one I wrestled with myself. Indeed, in the course of writing this book, I remember several conversations with friends where they they raised exactly your point and they said no you're exaggerating uh so i went back and rethought it but i don't think i'm exaggerating uh you know we're now a country of uh, over 330 million people what we've seen in in recent years is real economic problems where you've had decades now of relative stagnation of middle class wages so it's not just that inequality has grown but the absolute level of people's uh living standards in many cases has not gone up or it's not going up uh, adequately. We had the wars in, in Iraq and Afghanistan, which uh, increased alienation. I think the uh, media environment has changed when, you know, in the 50s, you had uh, an era, what I would call broadcasting, and Americans were exposed to common information flows, only a few of them. Now we live in an era of narrow casting. And what's increasingly happened is Americans expose themselves only to specific flows of information. Often those flows are not accurate, and often they confirm certain prejudices or biases that individuals have. Our schools don't do as good of a job anymore. Uh, in the 50s and 60s, things like social studies and civics were much more common than they are now. We moved away from, from teaching our own story political parties have gotten much weaker. The way we fund American politics has weakened parties, and it's made it much uh, less difficult or much easier for candidates who may have fairly radical views to, to get elected to office. The, there's no longer a need to compromise as much to get along with others in order to get party support, in part because they don't even need party support anymore. Each candidate can become his or, own, his or her own political party with their own independent sources of funding. So for any number of reasons, I think the the context, the landscape has made it much harder to to bring things together. And and to close the loop in terms of, of your areas of expertise, how much of this is as a result of the way in which the world is interconnected? You talk about living standards. Certainly globalization has played a part in that. Iraq and Afghanistan, you mentioned, that, that, that somehow we are more interconnected to the world, immigration being another issue, and that that interconnection has, has accentuated in some respects some of the problems that we face here at home. I think you're right. People feel buffeted by the world and again it's made us much more vulnerable to populism there's a sense that the present isn't as good as the past the future won't be as good as the present things are out of control and i think it's made citizens more vulnerable to to taking seriously certain voices or certain arguments that you know explain quote unquote or blame things uh whether it's on immigrants or anyone else and i think it's it's in many cases uh you know, wrong and don't get me wrong here uh i'm not a big fan of an open border i think we need to have border uh control and security but uh over the last you know few years we've we've greatly diminished the flow of legal immigrants into this country and it's as if americans have a, a degree of collective amnesia forgetting how legal immigration has been one of the great comparative advantages of american democracy and the american economy Look at the high percentage of uh, innovation that can be linked to uh, immigrants or or the children of of 
of, of immigrants. So I think globalization has added a sense of pressure on lots of citizens and they, they're looking at times for, for scapegoats about what they see as deteriorating uh, circumstances. And I think that explains the reaction. Are we like a company that has outgrown the reality of the marketplace? And by that, I mean, do we have to somehow figure out a way to restate the American proposition and, and, and essentially redesign it anew for the kind of world we exist in today? It's a really interesting question. If you and I sat down and we had a, a couple of uh, legal pads, since we're, you know, to use an old-fashioned metaphor, I expect we could come up with a number of reforms that we would that would arguably make this country work better. Again, you know, when the when the United States was formed two and a half centuries ago, the population was around three million, less than one percent of the current three hundred thirty-three million. So the idea that our political system would work as well today after only 27 amendments to the Constitution is, shall we say, unlikely. But the problem is we don't have the political consensus to make changes. There's no agreement. What would be good for one constituency or one state or one point of view would be seen as a threat by another state or another constituency or, or a contrasting point of view, which is why I wrote the, this book. I got, quite frankly, Jeff, tired it's not a very generous word, but I, I'll try to explain it, of reading all these articles and reports and books about how to improve American democracy. And the problem wasn't with the quality of the ideas. The ideas were perfectly good. But the political reality is those ideas will not be adopted. That, again, there'll always be winners and losers, and the losers or the, those who fear they would lose from the reform will, will block it. So what I wanted to do and what led me to write this book was not get involved in policy but basically say, how do we change the context in which policy proposals in which American politics are conducted? And that and that explains this emphasis on behaviors. It explains this emphasis on attitudes, on education and so forth. I, I want to change the backdrop, the the context for American politics, or we're never going to get to the to desirable and necessary reforms. And yet we're told over and over again in, in other parts of the world that changing culture, which essentially is what we're talking about, changing culture is harder than anything else. Changing culture is harder than anything else. It's hard uh, in business. It's it's often, you know, there's nothing tougher for a CEO than to to change the culture. But the lesson is also no amount of organizational reform will do the trick if the problem is the culture. And I'd say the same thing for the United States. I don't think what, again, what is our problem is our organizational things, or even when they are, without a cultural change, without a behavioral change, we won't build a consensus, again, to bring about the reform. So as difficult as it is, I don't see any uh, any alternative. And I don't think it's impossible. Difficult, yes. Impossible, no. And if we can get businesses who are advocates, say, for things like sustainability and uh, diversity, why can't businesses in America become an advocate for democracy? After all, their businesses depend on the rule of law. Why can't uh, religious leaders use their pulpits and talk about civility or talk about compromise or delegitimize resort to to violence why can't schools teach uh civics why can't national service be incentivized in in this country why can't more people uh, bother to vote why won't they and 
what could maybe you know what could maybe incentivize them to become more informed voters so difficult yes but i don't think anything i've written about in this book is is in la la land or is in any way impossible what it all seems to boil down to and it really goes to the heart of, of the title of your book is that we have to move away from thinking only in terms of what our rights are and add what our responsibilities and obligations are as citizens. Amen to that uh, for several reasons. One is that rights inevitably come into conflict and we need some mechanism for dealing with uh, conflicting rights, a mother's right to choose, the rights of the unborn. Well, how how do you deal with that? And if debates become all or nothing, well, what happens to the side that ends up with nothing? Might they not then feel they have no stake in the system and be tempted to resort to violence? So I, I don't think rights alone are the uh, answer. And as a result, you know, again, I've come out with this idea. We need to think not just what we're owed, but what we either owe to one another and what we owe to the government. And what I'm trying to say is when we when I talk about obligations to one another or to the country, that's not only what we give, but indirectly we get from it. Unless Americans start thinking not simply about what they're owed, but also what they in turn owe, uh, I fear the society will break down, and that would be to everybody's loss. How did we get to the point, do you think, that we have lost sight of what citizenship essentially means? Yeah, I agonize over that, and uh, I don't think there's any single cause any more than there's any single uh, solution. I do think that the failure to teach about citizenship in, in school is a, is a big deal. I come from a, a Jewish religious tradition. And one of the things I write about in the book is that Jews don't take for granted the idea that their history, that the, the concept of their, of their Jewishness, of religion, is, is somehow automatically handed down from generation to generation. That's why at one of the most important holidays that of Passover, Jews tell the story. And the whole idea is to teach children so then they come of age, they understand why their religion matters, and they'll be in a position a decade or two later to do it with and for their children. You you learn not to take narratives for granted. And that's particularly important to this country because America wasn't founded. uh, We're uh, we're not a hereditary monarchy. We're not founded on uh, aristocracy. We're not... we're not simply uh, based upon race or religion and, and so forth, even if, and even if at times we haven't lived up to our, our principles. The fact is this is a country based upon uh, equality and equal opportunity. Well, we need to tell that story. It's a, it's a pretty good story, but we shouldn't assume that story uh, or that narrative is understood. And I think you know, as much as anything else we've talked about, the change in the media landscape, and the change in the political landscape and so forth, I think our failure to to tell our story is a big part of it. And then secondly, and I alluded to it before, the fact that there's so few common experiences in America. I understand all the problems with the draft and so forth, but if you look at World War II and you look at previous eras, there was a commonality of experience, regardless of the circumstances of birth, how much education you had, uh, where you lived, what church you went to. And I worry now there's fewer and fewer common experiences. And it's one of the reasons I'm so interested in incentivizing, incentivizing national service. I want Americans who would normally never come into contact with one another. I want that to, to happen again. 
to come back to this idea of, of narrative because in some ways part of the problem comes from the way in which that narrative has been twisted over time so that the narrative now involves an awful lot of mythology that is inherent in it that people pick and choose and weaponize for their own purposes. Unfortunately, I can't disagree with you. And uh, when I think about what I want to do in coming years, I want to work on this. And I can imagine a, a follow-on book to the Bill of Obligations might be where I develop the idea of what would be a civics curriculum. What is the narrative that I think all Americans need to have and, and so forth. But I have no illusions about how controversial that would be and about how some will say it's too much of, of this and, and not enough of that. And as you say, we're seeing education, not just politicized, but I think your word, it's interesting, we use the same word, education's being weaponized. And that's gonna make a difficult situation more difficult. I think in the short run, it's probably unrealistic to think we can solve this at the federal level. My guess is, is what we're going to have, even though it's, it's wildly imperfect, are various uh, reforms done at the local and state level. New Jersey, for example, just instituted a reform on information literacy to teach young people how to discern facts and facts from misstatements and so forth. I would love to see something like that be replicated around the country. I can imagine several states will adopt serious uh, civics curricula, if, uh, and I'll, I'll try to help that process. Uh, I'll try to help that happen. And then hopefully other states will will decide that some version of that or actually that version itself would be would be preferable to what it is uh, they're now teaching or, or, or not teaching. But I have no illusions about how difficult this is going to be, by the way, from both right and left. I think on both sides of the political spectrum, just like there are competing notions now, the so-called 1619 project versus the 1776 project, very different emphases, what's included, what's excluded, very different ways of telling the narrative uh, is, is both is in many ways, it's a reflection of how we have come apart and lost our, our common thread. So perhaps it's a masochistic uh, undertaking but I can, I can see myself getting involved in this. I mean, what it does in some ways is it accentuates all the bad stuff because you're going to have, you know, a curriculum in New Jersey, as you're talking about, that's going to be 180 degrees from the curriculum that's going on in Florida. I mean, it, it will take the politi politicization in all of this and really give it steroids in each state. You're potentially right. And it's it's. It's nuts if you if you just take a moment to think about it. here we are, we're trying to talk about uh, our constitution, our democracy, a national political culture and fabric, and the idea that someone in Florida should learn a different American story from somebody in New Jersey that defeats the purpose. So I agree with you a hundred percent. At the moment, you know, if I if I could make it happen at the federal level, uh, I would. I'm, I'm skeptical. So my view is at least try to you know, build it in certain states, what Brandeis called states, if you remember the, the laboratories of democracy, and then we can um, maybe make it go federal from there. Is there a way, and, and, and you know, this is something that, that people are always suspicious of, but, but you do get the feeling that on the federal level, uh, on a national level, that the only way it can really get kickstarted at the very least is in the embodiment of some kind of charismatic leadership that takes this on. You may be right. And 
somebody could emerge. Um, I just can't, as a citizen, say for sure two things. One, you can't count on that. It may happen, but we can't put all of our eggs in that basket because it also may not happen. And second of all, we shouldn't assume charisma is necessarily constructive. Uh, I, I would, you know, I found the previous president uh, to have uh, certain types of charisma as a politician, but I wouldn't necessarily say that a lot of what he did was constructive in terms of uh, the obligations of of, of citizens. So I, I worry about charisma potentially absent a, a firm understanding of of what America is all about. To what extent do we confuse? what we see in terms of some of these divisions and some of these these attitudes that really bring us back to the beginning of this conversation with what's really happening in in the heart of the country do we make the mistake sometimes there's always the fear that we make the mistake that we attribute to what we hear within a certain echo chamber to the entire country which which may be more immune from some of this than we think for better and for worse again I remember growing up, there were different theories about American society, uh, about melting pots versus mixing pots. And I think now we live in a very differentiated America. Uh, I remember Tip O'Neill saying, all politics is local. Well, we've, we've put that on stilts and because of people are living in communities and often not leaving them. And that could be educational communities or economic communities, uh, religious communities. I think there's, there's less and less of a commonality. And again, I think that's very dangerous to a country that has all these you know, people of, of different races and religions and backgrounds. We need to have this commonality be front and center or our differences potentially would be will will tear us apart. So I, I don't underestimate the difficulty of what I'm talking about, but also I think it's essential. I mean, it goes to the heart. Somebody wrote a book recently, and I, I wish I could remember who, but that the idea was looking at successful democracies and that successful democracies not unlike ours in its early days tend to be much more homogeneous and and that to create a democracy like ours in a diverse environment in a melting pot is is even more difficult than we think it is exactly a lot of democracies around the world are very one-dimensional they're homogenous if you will if you look at a japan or 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 south korea or a lot of the european countries the european countries in some cases are also somewhat mixed but they're also struggling uh, whether it's because of uh immigration or what have you so this is a country here that we are a country of immigrants and so our democracy will only work if our backgrounds and if our religions or races or genders or what have you are not determinative. And that's why, again, it is so important for us to teach some of the things I'm writing about, whether it's our, our common heritage or certain values or behaviors about uh, tolerance, about civility, about not turning to violence. Because otherwise, if our the differences that are that make up this democracy, they're potentially destructive. So I, th- I think in the last few years, we've had something of a warning shot our inability to get things done politically, some of the violence we've seen politically. So I take that, I take that seriously. So you know, the point you raise is totally legitimate. You, we cannot take for granted that American democracy will thrive given these internal differences in this society. This is, uh, but I also think we want American democracy to not just survive, but thrive. It's demonstrated its value, but we can't, we don't have the luxury of being sanguine about it. 
It's interesting. I mean, you, you, you've narrowed it down and you're very prescriptive about the, the 10 areas, the 10 good habits of citizenship in the book. And, and what it says in a way is that rather than our bias in a society today towards complexity, that we have to kind of strip a lot of the bad stuff away and really just get back to the simplicity of, of the core of democracy and of citizenship. <laughs> it's interesting. One of the other conversations I had about the book a few days ago with the host, he started reciting the the Scout's Oath. Uh, <laughs> and he said, some of what you're writing reminds me of the stuff I was taught 40 or 50 years ago when I was uh, a boy and I started laughing. So I think you're onto something. We're talking about certain types of traditional behaviors, values, uh, outlooks. And what's so bad with that? I mean, they, they stood this country well. Now, again, we've learned it's not they're not enough and we have to adjust. And it's one of the advantages, by the way, of democracies. Democracies have shown over time a, a flexibility, a capacity for for change, for for adjustment. I just want to make sure we keep it. And before I let you go, talk about generational change and whether in that generational change there is some potential solution or potential problem because the problem with the younger generation is not having had that grounding in in the history and the narrative but there is an idealism there that you, you want to try and reach i think there's an idealism and i think there's also a genuine worry a lot of young people look out and say the future is not going to be good it's certainly not going to be better than it was for my parents kind of downward mobility which i think is a, a dangerous uh possibility so again it's the reason that i think we have to get better at coming together so we can meet some of these economic and social challenges so these these negative outlooks don't come don't don't, don't basically come to fruition and we do have to do a better job of teaching our story in our schools hence my focus on civics hence my focus also on national service to get these younger people a chance to to break down some of the barriers uh they they currently have again i'm not i'm not saying this is going to be easy i'm just saying it's it's necessary and important if we are going to keep uh this valuable inheritance richard haas his new book is the bill of obligations the 10 habits of good citizens richard it is always a pleasure i thank you so much for spending time with us jeff thanks again for for having me thank you